It is my pleasure to welcome Debbie Allen. Debbie has worked with our eExtension Foundation over many years. She's also uh, no stranger to Cooperative Extension as she has provided assistance and support in uh, publication and book development and editing, uh, publishing with technical writing and journalism. Uh, she is now the current author and editor, in, or excuse me, editor in chief of the Journal of Extension. And so we are really happy uh, to bring to you Debbie, uh, with all of her expertise and her eye for the details, uh, as she talks to you about uh, writing for research. Thank you, Debbie. Um, I'm really happy to be here today. Welcome to everybody. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you all about writing about uh, research. When Ashley approached me about doing this webinar, um, I immediately thought about the theme of clarity because most of the issues I see in manuscripts submitted to Joe uh, relate to lack of clarity. Uh, so what I'm going to do today, my, my two goals are to, to talk to you about some obstacles related to clarity and then to give you some strategy uh, strategies for how to overcome those obstacles. Um, I'm, my presentation was running a little long, so I may skim over some of the slides a little bit, but the slides will all be available after the presentation as well as two handouts. One has examples of problems and solutions and one is the 12 strategies that I'm going to talk about. So with that, I will share my screen. So when I first uh, thought, okay, I'm going to talk about clarity, I started writing down all the things um, in a written work that have to do with clarity. And I was like, this list seems really familiar to me, and it took me just a couple minutes to realize it's because it's everything I look for when I do an editorial review of a manuscript submitted to Joe. So the, those things that I look for are comprehensiveness, effective organization, coherence, accuracy and preciseness, uh, correct grammar mechanics, and attention to editorial staff. And I'm going to talk about all those um, topics today, uh, but I'm going to focus probably a little bit more on coherence and preciseness than the other topics, just because those are the areas that I see the most issues with um, in, in manuscripts submitted to Joe. So I'm going to start actually going back to before you ever think about writing or begin to write a manuscript. And we have a few poll questions, and the first one is, is this. Um, do you think ahead about writing about your research while you're designing a study? So Mark, do you want to push that out there? Yep, I've launched that poll, so our attendees, you should see that poll question now, and uh, go ahead and enter your answer. We'll just take about 20 questions maybe for that. I said 20 questions, and I will take about 20 seconds for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just uh, about another 10, 10 seconds. Alrighty. All right, so we'll end that, and then I'm going to share the results. And Debbie, if you can't see those, um, pretty sp split. In fact, split exactly even evenly between yes and sometimes. 47% yes, 47% sometimes, and then 6% uh, or only three attendees said no. Okay, that's great. Um, it's great that you think about that. It's kind of understandable if you if you don't think about it because you've got a lot to think about when you're designing the study, but that's that's excellent. And the reason I ask this question is because um, obviously a lot of times in, when you submit a manuscript, you want to include survey items, um, interview questions, maybe even um, you know protocols used for focus group sessions and things like that are parts of those things. And when I see these things in manuscripts submitted to Joe, sometimes I, they have unclear language in them or inconsistencies or even you know, misspellings and grammar errors and so forth. So it's a great idea to be thinking ahead about the fact that you may very well want to publish some of this um, when you're designing your study elements. And there's an, another 
really good reason to do that, a better reason actually, and that is um, that it, it can help with the integrity of your study because if the clearer you can make those, those elements that you use in the study, the better off your study participants are going to be in understanding what it is you're trying to get at. And in fact, I had a peer review come back recently um, that, I, that was really uh, pertinent to this. Basically, the peer reviewer had, had included a note to the author saying that he was concerned about the lack of care in choosing survey question language and how it might have affected respondents' understanding of what, of what was being asked. So there are multiple reasons at different levels to think about the fact that you may be publishing something at the point at which you're designing the study. So that brings me to my first strategy. It's a pretty simple one, just to consider aspects of publishing as early as even the program development stage, but certainly at the study design stage. Okay. I'm going to move on now to when you actually sit down to write a manuscript. Um, a couple broad areas you, that have a great impact on, on clarity are comprehensiveness and organization. And I actually have two poll questions that relate to this, and I'll do one and we'll talk about it and then move on to the next one. So this first question is this. Have you read the manuscript elements section in Chapter 2 of the APA manual? Okay, attendees, go ahead and... Uh log your answer there. We'll take uh, about 15 seconds. Just another five seconds. All righty, I'll share those results so others can see them. So Debbie, they are um, uh, yes, and I've skimmed it are pretty close. Uh, nine said yes, eight said they've skimmed it, but the majority, uh, 37 said no. Okay. All right. Well, that's good to know. The reason I asked this question is because I, I'm a firm believer in not reinventing the wheel. And I'm going to share, this is the table of contents from chapter two of the APA manual. First of all, let me start by saying the APA manual, this is it. If you can see me in the little square here, it's the publication manual of the American Psychological Association. And it's the publication manual that we use at Joe uh, that we base style on and so forth. But so it has, you know, when you should capitalize things and stuff like that. But more important, it has great information about what to put in an article, where to put it, um, you know, what, how deep in depth to go on different things. It also has sections on um, writing clearly, and then it has all kinds of style, grammar, and all that sort of stuff. But what I want to talk about right here is this manuscript elements section of chapter two. My goal here today is just to talk mostly about how to make your writing clear, so I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about what you should include in a manuscript, but I did want to just point this out as a great resource, and I want to just briefly go over these four main sections. So um, the introduction section, I kind of distilled what the APA manual has to say about it, and basically it's, you know, describe the problem the research addresses and provide background information, uh, provide a summary of the most recent and if applicable seminal work directly related to the problems. That's your lit review, and I did want to point out a few important words there. Most recent, seminal, and directly related, so you want to just key in on that. Um, and then introduce your approach to addressing the problem, the purpose of your study, research objectives or research questions, however you want to do that. The key here is that by the time readers have read your, your description of the problem, your lit review, and your introduction of your approach to addressing the problem, they should, have a, they should know a couple of things. One, how your study relates back to previous work that's been done. And second, how you expect your study to contribute to, expected your study to contribute to solving the problem. So that's, that's the idea of the introduction section. And I actually would add one more uh, element to that. And that is that I, I think it's really helpful and important to close with a hook. 
And by this, I mean like an overarching suggestion about the implications of your findings, kind of a hint. Um, I actually think of it as sort of foreshadowing that compels the audience to keep reading. So I've got an example here, um, and it's basically uh, giving nutrition program leaders a reason to keep reading, and also the, the greater extension community at large. To, so it's giving both audiences a reason to keep reading, and it's something that an, an author recently used in um, a manuscript that I looked at. So that's what I'm talking about with Close with the Hook, and, and that's kind of a brief overview of, of the introduction section. Um, the method section obviously varies a great deal from paper to paper because you know studies different, differ so much from one another. Um, it's got some essential elements. I'm not going to read those. You can take a look at the slides later. But I will say that, that the key here is to just provide the, the right amount of detail that allows readers to understand the study, evaluate the appropriateness of the methods you use, uh, evaluate the reliability and validity of the results, and then be able to replicate or build on the study. So that's, that's what you want to think of when you write your methods section. Um, then presenting results. Obviously, this is where you talk about the relevant data you collected and the analyses you performed. And I wanted to stop here and point out that um, the APA manual, in addition to this chapter two section that we're talking about, it has chapters that include information, whole sections on how to present statistics, and whole separate sections on uh, using figures and using tables. So a lot of great information throughout the manual that you can use um, as uh, guidance when you're writing a results section. Then I would also add that, you know, this goes along with the effective organization of a manuscript. If, if, if you can organize your results in a way that aligns with content that's in previous sections of the manuscript, that's helpful to the reader. And for example, like if you've listed two research objectives in your introduction, then if you can talk about the results for the first objective and then the results for the second objective, that can be helpful. That kind of organization can be helpful to readers and having a clearer understanding of, of what you're talking about. That's not always possible to do it that way, but if you can, I suggest you do. And then finally, um, speaking of comprehensiveness, you also have to keep in mind word count limits. You know, and especially in Joe, we have some pretty restrictive word count limits. So in trying to make that balance between saying everything you need to say and staying within word count limits, my advice is to you know, make use of figures and tables. These are your best friends. Find even you know, interesting ways to do figures. I had a manuscript recently where there was a lot of qualitative data and they had boiled it down to some themes and they put that in a word cloud. And I thought that was an excellent way to present the information um, without having to take a lot of words to do so. So then when you have narrative that talks about a figure or table, be sure you don't repeat everything in the narrative. Just You just want to um, basically sort of let the reader know what they need to be looking for. What are the highlights of the table, let's say, or what you know, what's the overarching idea of the table? So that it gives them a clue of what they should be looking at. So that's, a, that's a kind of a condensation of what you want to have in your results section. Um, and then finally to this, the discussion section, and I, I'm not going to read these quotes from the APA manual, but I thought they were excellent. They're, they're just a really good uh, description of what someone would, would need to have in their um, discussion section. And the kind of bottom line of it is that you're just taking that section as your opportunity to answer the so what question for various aspects of your study. And I, I do find, and mostly uh, I, I, I notice this, and also peer reviewers tend to notice it, um, people do sometimes go a little light on these things, like uh, people might not talk enough about qualifying their results. They might not talk enough about the limitations of their study. Um, or a lot of times they're just a little light on implications, um, which is, that's the importance of your findings, is what are the implications. So these are some, I think, excellent uh, guidelines from the APA mail that can help you. And, crafting a good discussion section.
so my second strategy is simply this. Become familiar with that section of the APA manual, and then don't do that, you know, don't wait till you're ready to write. Just really kind of get that in your head. And then when you sit down to write, think, give thoughtful consideration to how you want to apply that guidance to your specific manuscript. And it's going to vary from manuscript to manuscript. I kind of think of it like a sort of a smorgasbord. You pick and choose the parts that will work best for whatever manuscript it is you're working on. So uh, before I go any further, I just wanted to find out, Ashley, if maybe we have any questions yet about anything? Um, no, we're good. Um, okay, good. Good. All right. Um, okay, so then the second question I have, poll question I have that relates to um, comprehensiveness and organization is this. Do you use a pre-writing strategy when you write research articles? Okay, I've launched that poll. Go ahead and enter your results there, folks. And we'll just take another five seconds. Okay. Share the results with the folks. So we got um, Debbie. Um, it's a little more skewed. Uh, so forty-five said yes, outlining. Okay. Nine say no, free free writing. And did did I get that wrong? Should that have been yes, free free? free? Oh yeah, so it yes, should have been free yes, writing? free writing. Okay, and I think I think folks picked up on that. I, I'm assuming maybe they they picked up on that. Yeah. So outlining, uh, there were forty-five. Uh, free, free writing nine, other six, and then no three. Okay. All right. Well, that's really good to hear because um, for one thing, I'm a huge, huge fan of outlining. I think um, you just, you know, obviously different types of pre-writing work better for different types of people, but um, I think outlining is maybe one of the best ways to make sure that you do everything you need to do. And I, I'm not alone in this. I know there are a lot of English teacher teachers across the country who would agree with me, and not only that, but the APA manual <coughs> has something to say on outlining, and, and I'd just like to stop and say you may be noticing that I spend a lot of time talking about the APA manual, and that's because it usually agrees with me, so that's why I like to refer people to it. But seriously, it does have excellent information, and in this case, it talks about, it kind of explains what an outline can do for you, um, and the, the first parts are kind of they make sense, main ideas and supporting ideas, but things that people might not think about are, are the rest of that quotation. It, they can keep you from going off on a tangent um, and they can help you notice omissions. So they can keep you from going over on your word count, saying everything you actually need to say without going over your word count. And then make sure that you don't miss something that your peer reviewer is gonna notice if you haven't noticed it. So um, that brings me to the third strategy, which is very simple, use an outline or another pre-writing strategy. Does anybody have any questions about that stuff. Mm, no questions at this time. Okay, great. Okay, so the next broad topic I want to talk about is coherence. And um, this is how the parts of a manuscript fit together. And when you, you need to make sure that the parts all fit together and you, you need to make sure that your, re your readers will understand that in a relationship of the parts. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time, like I said, on this topic because this is one of the two areas where I really probably see the most issues in manuscripts submitted to Joe. So um, the first thing here in, in the problems I see is a, a title that doesn't reflect the main idea of the manuscript. That doesn't happen that often, but it does uh, occasionally happen. So one thought there is just when you're kind of done with your a good draft of the manuscript, just go back and check your title and make sure it still says what you want it to. The second bullet there is about irrelevant, redundant, repetitive, or unfounded content. 
I have some examples here. Um, unnecessary information in the lit, lit review, or uh, another thing that happens sometimes in lit reviews is people will put in a lot of, they'll say the same thing in different ways and cite different sources, but, but you're basically just saying the same thing, so that would need to be condensed. Um, repeating information from one section of a manuscript to another, um, like for example, maybe repeating something from your methods section and your results section. Um, another thing is introducing new material in the discussion section that kind of can come out of nowhere to a reader. Sometimes there's a reason to do that, but usually it's not a great practice to introduce new information in your discussion section. Um, and then finally, unfounded content. This one refers to um, making, drawing conclusions and, and pointing out implications that aren't actually derived from the results of your research. So I see that, you know, all of those things fairly regularly in manuscripts that get submitted to Joe. Um, disjointedness from paragraph to paragraph. I actually have an analogy for this. I like to watch gymnastics, um, but I don't know a lot about gymnastics. So when I see the gymnast on the balance beam, it's like, to me, she just seems to be doing these random, you know, skills. And then when I watch the uneven parallel bars, it's like it makes sense. There's this flow from one skill to the next, and you know, there's a purpose, like when you get to the top bar, you do a handstand to show your strength and that kind of thing. And that's kind of how I think about paragraphing in a manuscript. There needs to be a flow from paragraph to paragraph, and there needs to be a purpose for each paragraph that's clear to the reader. Uh, okay, the next thing is ineffective use of quoted material. Basically, if you're going to quote something, and this happens probably more often when, you're, when people are quoting research studies than it does when you're quoting source materials, I mean research participants. Um, but basically, if you're going to quote something, it needs to really have impact. That, that quote needs to say something in, in an impactful way and really add meaning. Otherwise, it might be just as easy or better even to paraphrase. So that's one issue with quoted material. Uh, another issue is not providing enough context for the reader to understand what it is you're trying to convey with the quoted material. I see that quite a bit. Um, and then the third thing, which I see a lot, is um, people not... Uh, incorporating quoted material in a grammatically correct way into um, surrounding text. And this, this includes punctuation and, and, you know, making sure verb tenses match up and that sort of thing. But it also, a way you can get around it is to use bracketed text or ellipses if you need to, to sort of make that flow from the surrounding text into the quotation and then back out into the surrounding text to make that work very well. Um, okay, but another issue I see is lack of consistency in the presentation of information, and I think this is kind of a hard one, really, for authors to think about. It may be easier to see when you're with fresh eyes. But the kind of thing I'm talking about here is, um, for example, if you have a control group and a treatment group, and you talk about, you introduce, you know, who the control group is and who the treatment group was, then throughout the rest of the manuscript, if you can continue to talk about those two groups in that same order, control group first, treatment group second, that, that just helps the reader keep track of things. You might not be able to do that. There may be a reason to switch up the order, but whenever you can, try to keep the order consistent. And the other thing about consistency is consistent use of language. Um, the whole idea of clarity is that you don't want your reader to have to wonder something. Um, and when people use inconsistent language, you cause your reader to wonder something. I had a manuscript in, uh, recently where the authors were talking about professional development, and they used a variety of terms. They used uh, professional development training, um, uh, new employee training, and different terms like that, which is fine. They all meant the same thing, but what that can do is make the reader say, have to stop and think, now, do they mean the same thing here as they did over there? And so it's easier and better for the reader if you just use the same language throughout.
Um, okay, now I have a um, I have a document that I want to switch over to that's got some examples for the rest of the bullets on this page. Whoops, I'm gonna have to do this a little step at a time here. Okay, okay. So another issue with um, with coherence is parallelism, um, and and parallel, lack of parallelism can occur in a variety of ways. Uh, it can happen in headings and subheadings. So if you have headings in your manuscript, they need to be grammatically, if they're at the same level, they need to be have the same grammatical structure as one another. The examples I have here are, are subheadings. And these examples in this document are kind of just based on things I've actually seen in manuscripts submitted to Joe. I've, I've modified them and so forth to make them work for the presentation. But that's what they are. So basically, um, here are three subheadings on, on the left, and the first one is a noun phrase, the second one is kind of an imperative, like call on specialist, and then this, the third one is a clause, it's got a subject and a verb. So they're grammatically, they're structured differently from one another. Um, so what you would want to do in that case is just pick one and go with it. In this case, I went with the noun phrase, so the first example is the same. The second one becomes a call on specialist, and the third one becomes commitment to community recovery. Um, so, I'm, I know I'm throwing out a lot of grammar terms and so forth, and we'll talk about grammar a little later, so just bear with me on that right now. Uh, okay, so lack of parallelism also can occur in um, lists. In this case, the same deal. The, gram the grammatical structure is different on these three options. I changed them all to, to gerunds. They all start with the ing verb. Um, and then lack of um, parallelism can happen within a sentence as well. In this case, it's the same thing. There's a gerund, the ing verb used for the first part of the predicate of this sentence and then not for the second. So you just want to make those match up. Um, it just helps readers, it, it helps them understand that these are two parallel, that these two parts of a sentence or parts of a list or whatever are the same and that they're conceptually the same. Using the same gram, grammar structure helps them understand that they're conceptually the same. Okay, so another uh, topic related to coherence is capricious ordering of information. Um, this can occur in the narrative. And one example that I actually have seen multiple times is you might have a list of counties for some reason. And um, it's just better to, if, if there's no reason not to, to just go ahead and list those counties in alphabetical order. Because if you don't, then the reader can kind of think, why are the counties listed this way? What's the meaning? Is one bigger than the other? Um, if there is a reason to list counties in a certain order, that's fine. But that that reason needs to be clear to the to the reader. So in your narrative, you want to think about how you're ordering information. Same thing with uh, graphic displays. So I have a couple tables here. In this first table, the skills here are, um, they're ordered in alphabetical order. But this table gives means. And so the way the data should be arranged in this table would relate to the means. You would want to maybe go highest mean to lowest mean. The idea being that you want the reader to just be able to glance at that graphic display and immediately understand what it's trying to say um, and immediately get a grasp of the data and then they can go in and explore further if they if they need to or want to. Now with this next table you can't really arrange the data it's there's no logical arrangement to this table right now and you can't really arrange the data in some logical way because you've got three columns of percentages and so if you made one from highest to lowest the others wouldn't be so in that case it might be a good idea to um, alphabetize the skills, that that could be your logical arrangement of, of information. And the APA manual talks more about this. Um, it's one of those things that writers don't really think about, and readers maybe even only subconsciously notice, um, but it is something that helps with clarity. 
And then the last thing I have to do, have to say about coherence, oh no, I'm sorry, there are two more topics. Uh, the first one is logical setup of figures and tables and information omitted from figures and tables. So with this figure, um, the author has put the means for pre-test and post-test results from, you know, four different questionnaire items. But the authors used this contributive, uh, a figure that has this contributive aspect. And so when the reader sees this, the reader is expecting these two numbers, like on this first bar, to add up and mean something. And in this case, of course, they don't. It's just pretest means and post-test means. So it's very confusing to the reader. The other problem with this figure is there are numbers down here, and the reader doesn't know what they are. Not to mention, um, and you'll see from when, you, when I show the correction for this figure, these, these numbers are actually inappropriate. So let me go down to the next um, the correction. So this is the figure redone. Um, you know, right away you can see you've used two bars for each item, so it's very clear to see that how the post-test and pre-test um, compare to one another. And then there's a label for the x-axis that clearly explains what those numbers are. And now the numbers are what they are supposed to be, which is up to number, which is up to four because the scale only went up to four, whereas in the previous figure there, the numbers went up to eight. Um, okay, and then. I have a table also because people sometimes don't get the structures of tables right. Tables all have a left, uh, a stub column, which is the leftmost column. And then all the data in the table needs to relate to that leftmost column. Um, so uh, in this case, we have a list of, of years in the leftmost column. That's great. We have total posts per year in the next column. That makes sense. And then suddenly we jump to months. Well, obviously, you know, 2009 had all 12 months. So here's where that table falls apart. And this would need to be broken into a couple tables is what, what you would need to do to fix that. And then finally, the last thing I wanted to say about uh, coherence is uh, careless references to figures and tables. So you might have a paragraph where you're, you know, you're introducing a table that has a bunch of data in it and you're giving some highlights of that data. So you have a few sentences. In this case, I have a paragraph that only has a, a couple sentences. Um, and this is an example of what I see. I see where um, authors will just put the reference to the table or figure in the last sentence or the first sentence, when in reality the entire paragraph relates to it. So it's confusing. It doesn't, tell, it doesn't help the reader know how one part of your manuscript relates to another part. So to fix that, you would need to either have a reference to the table in every sentence in that paragraph or have some overarching sentence um, that refers to the table, like in the second uh, fix that I've made here. It says table one shows demographic data for, for the respondents. So those are the kinds of things that um, can really help with coherence in your, in your manuscript. Um, so that brings me to the, to the fourth strategy, which is a long one. I've got a lot of bullet points here. Some we've already talked about, but some I want to go into a little bit of detail about. So the first one is this. Think of writing a manuscript as telling a story, because you are telling, you're telling the story of your research. Um, so if you think of it that way, then you know that there has to be continuity from the title through the conclusion, and that every piece of your manuscript needs to contribute in some meaningful way to that story that you're telling. Um, another thing, use headings and subheadings. Uh, obviously, those are kind of like signposts to help guide readers through your manuscript. And usually, authors who submit to Joe do an excellent job with, with using headings and subheadings. Avoid redundancy. We talked about that a little, but um, one strategy I can give you here is if, if you Wanting to repeat something from your, uh, let's say, your method section in your results section. You don't have to pick it up wholesale and repeat it. If you're just trying, you just need to remind the reader, remember I said we did this, well, here were the results. So you just want to give like a kind of overarching sentence that is just serves as a reminder. 
Uh, keep paragraphs as short as possible, especially for online journals, but don't break up a paragraph inappropriately. Um, this is where coherence can fall apart if, if there are these, a, a paragraph has a purpose. Um, it, it's to, to talk about one specific topic in some depth. So if you have a couple paragraphs that seem to be talking about the same topic, then that's just confusing to people. And sometimes I think, you know, you see a long paragraph, you think, oh, I have to break that. So you just break it uh, randomly, and that's not an appropriate way to, to get, get it shorter paragraphs. And sometimes you just have to have long paragraphs. Transitions and topic sentences, this relates back to my gymnastics um, analogy. It's just helping the reader understand what you already know. And then the rest of these we've really talked about. Uh, quoted material, be consistent, parallelism, and using logic. So that was a, a lot of information. Ashley, does anybody have any questions about any of that? Um, no, we're good. Okay, great. All right. Um, okay, so now I want to get a little bit more granular and talk about accuracy and preciseness. Um, so I'll start with accuracy, and I just want to toggle for one minute to my uh, document here with some examples. Um, in this case, so a lot of times um, I see inaccurate language that just, just the author just didn't think about what, what they were saying. And here's an example of that. The main reason respondents gave for not participating in the program was affordability. Well, affordability is a good thing. That wouldn't be a reason for not participating in the program. But I see things like this all the time in manuscripts. Um, and what you really want to say to be accurate with your language is that the reason they didn't participate was lack of affordability. So you just have to be careful about the language you're choosing, making sure it's saying exactly what you mean. Um, okay, the rest of the problems I see related to accuracy in, in, in the manuscripts I review have to do with basically math, um, numbers, and then uh, citations and references. So I see all kinds of uh, issues where the math doesn't add up, percentages don't make sense, and so forth. Problems where percentages in a, a paragraph about a table don't match up with the percentages that are actually in the table. Same thing happens with citations and references. Um, there may be errors or they don't match up. The citation doesn't match up with what's listed in the references list. So that brings me to my next strategy which is to do individual passes through your manuscript to double check for accuracy in language, math, and citations and references. And I actually mean go through once and look for language. This is after you've hopefully even set aside your manuscript for a day or so. Go through and look for uh, language that doesn't make sense. Check all your math, every single number, and check all your citations and references. The thing about accuracy is it's probably the, the easiest thing to achieve when it comes to making sure that you've written with clarity because it's black and white. Either something's accurate or it's not accurate. The challenge comes in with, with this strategy right here where you have to actually take the time and effort to make it accurate. And it's important not just for clarity, but it's important for, for credibility as well. So I can't stress enough. In fact, I'd have to say almost all of the manuscripts I've reviewed since I started at Joe, I have found math errors in. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's something that people really need to pay attention to. Okay, now preciseness, on the other hand, is kind of the opposite. I, I think it's a very hard thing for people to, to achieve um, when they're trying to, to make, write a clear manuscript. And the reason for that is because you know exactly 100% what you're trying to say. So whatever you've written makes perfect sense to you. But the reader does not have that kind of background. Uh, so that's why this is a really, really difficult one to, to get at. And it's one that I want to talk about a lot because I see a lot of issues with preciseness in the manuscripts I review. But we're going to start with a, a, another poll question. So this one is, are you uncomfortable with or opposed to using first person when writing about your research? Mark, did you push that one out yet? 
I'm sorry, I was, uh, I, I'm uh, slacking on the job here. Let me get, <laughs> okay. okay, here we go. Launch that poll. Okay, folks, you should be seeing that now. We'll take about uh, 15 seconds for that one. Okay, just another five seconds. And Debbie, while they're doing that, um, yeah. I had a question. Uh, okay. Earlier when you were talking uh, about references and that it's better not to list a reference or list a, a concept in multiple ways with different references, would it be more appropriate in that case to describe the concept of the re and then reference it with multiple references yeah. within that one sentence as opposed, or yeah. would it just be better to pick the best one? You can do it either way. You can use examples, you know, of the kind of the most important research related to that, what you're trying to say, but you can also do what you just said, write one sentence that's, you know, basically says what the research all says and then list multiple references, cite multiple references. Yeah, that's fine. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. Now share the results with folks here. Uh, so, uh, yes, for the most part, one. So 27, so 47% were yes, 29% uh, no. And then about the same percentage, 24% said they were un unclear. And then Okay, so most people are uncomfortable with or opposed to using first person. This oh, is yeah, not surprising. Just, okay. Yeah, I was going to say, also there's a, a comment in chat about that. Someone said, yes, un uncomfortable with it since we were trained not to do that in, in, right. in graduate school. Exactly. And that's what I was going to get at. So um, tradition in scholarly writing has commanded that Authors either, either awkwardly write about themselves in third person, saying the researcher or something like that, or discount their own existence by writing in passive voice, which leads, actually both of these are really unnatural ways of writing. And, uh, you know, they both lead to lack of clarity, lack of precision. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's how people have been trained, but fortunately, from an editor's point of view, the tide is turning because it, it leads to just, frankly, very poor writing. Um, so I'm really glad to see that that resources such as the AP manual are advocating the use of first person and active voice because it just makes for much clearer writing. Um, so the way I like to tell people to think about this is um, basically write like you talk. Now, I don't mean, you know, use slang and sentence fragments and all that. But, you know, um, don't don't use difficult sentence structures and, and stuff like that. Like think about it like as if you were talking to a colleague about your research and you're not going to use, you know, long complicated sentences and you're not going to use a five syllable word like utilization. If you can just say use, you're just not going to do that kind of thing. And the other thing you wouldn't do is you would not use third person and passive voice. For example, you would not talk to a colleague and say the researcher did this when you're talking about yourself and you likely wouldn't say then that was done because if you did talk like that to a colleague, you'd have a conversation like the one depicted here, where your colleague would be pretty confused about what you were trying to say. So that said, um, I, I can't stress enough how much your how improved your writing will be if you if you can get on board with the new way of doing things, which is to use first person active voice. And feel free to check that out in the APA manual and other resources that advocate it. Um, and I, as far as how these two, how third person and passive voice contribute to lack of clarity, particularly lack of precision, I just want to give you a little um, extra thoughts on that. And that is this. So you're writing an article about research. So you're going to be talking about research and researchers. So if you don't use first person to, you know, 
distinguish yourself, then it's very unclear to the reader. It can be very unclear as to whether you're still talking about another researcher or what if you use third person to talk about yourself. And as far as active voice versus passive voice, active voice, there's no subject of the, there's, there's not, there's the, whoever performed the action is not clear. And so that's a way that, that use of passive voice contributes to um, impreciseness and, and ultimately lack of clarity. Um, I was going to move on, but actually, I just want to make, this is a big topic, and I just wanted to see if any, anybody has any questions about yeah, this. There is a question. Um, can you discuss how to balance preciseness with simplifying language to target an audience without the same scientific background or reading level? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Well, I mean, to me, it kind of goes back to what I was just saying. Put yourself in the position of talking to that person. You know, you, most people who do research, I find, um, are able to really talk about it at, at different levels. And so that's what you want to do is think about, you know, I'm in a conversation with this person. How would I, how would I talk about this? And, and decide, determine, you know, who your audience is and then decide how to talk to that person and then put that, put that in writing. In the chat, Jody's asked, can you give a few examples? Of, uh, of I think maybe, maybe of that question. First person? Possibly. Maybe she can add more. In her okay, chat. I'll throw out examples of first. I'll just talk a little bit about first person. Um, if, in the APM, and I actually wrote an editor's page about this. I think it's October of 2016. If anyone wants to go back and look at it, I'm sure you'll be chomping at a bit to do that. But anyway, <laughs> it's also in the APA manual. And basically what it says is don't, there's no reason to hide that you did this. You did this research. So just say, you know, especially this comes out in um, the methods section. This is a big place, probably the biggest place where it's not, where people tend to use passive voice instead of active voice. So instead of saying, you know, a study was conducted, just say I or we, however many authors there are, I conducted a study and then tell about it. I did this. I used, you know, I used these uh, statistical procedures. There's no shame in that. You know, <laughs> there's, it's, it's something you should actually be proud of. So uh, it's just, it's just a matter of how people, used to be trained and getting used to a new way of doing things, but I, I can't stress enough how much better your writing will be if you, if you do it in this new way. And that's why they changed it. I mean, I'm surprised it went on for as long as it did, frankly. Well, Jody says, thank you, but we have another comment in a question. Okay. Uh, it's extremely odd that the old AP way um, used third person. <clears throat> I think it was that way when I was in graduate school. Uh, and this was uncomfortable before, this was uncomfortable before grad school. Now that first person is acceptable, it is uncomfortable to go back, you know, to that way of journal writing. Uh, one person has asked, how widely accepted is the use of first person writing in other journals? Are you aware of that? Well, I can tell you this. The AP manual is widely used in the behavioral sciences. I mean, it is the go-to manual for many, many journals. And it is advocating the use of first person. It has been ever since at least the sixth edition came out, and I don't really know what the fifth edition said. Um, so it is, I mean, I don't know how widely it's happening, but it should be happening widely because if people are following the, the guidance of the AP manual and all those journals that the AP manual applies to, then people should be writing in first person. There is another question um, that Sharon has submitted. In something I'm currently working on, Word, I'm assuming Microsoft Word, told me this is passive voice. Can you comment? So I'm going to read you the passage. Okay. It says, in this study, standard errors for the willingness to pay, 
estimates were estimates were produced using the bootstrap procedure with 1000 replications. Okay, so that is passive voice. Were what was it? Were produced using? Uh, were uh, excuse me. Yes, were produced using the. Okay, procedure. so the passive voices were produced. You're using um, the be verb were in the past tense, and then you know the verb produced, and it's got a grammatical error that happens all the time. Um, were produced using that using. There's because passive voices used. There's no subject to that sentence. Um, or, well, there's no there's no actor. I should say in that sentence. So when you say using, there is a person who used whatever it is you're talking about, but that person's not named in the sentence. So technically that's grammatically incorrect, which is why there's this push, I think, to go to first person and active voice because really right, scholarly authors have been writing all this time in what's you know, technically not even a grammatically correct way. Um, but, but I think more important than that really is the, is the lack of clarity. Um, it's just so much clearer to say, and I, that was a pretty long sentence, but basically you would say, we use such and such, such and such to produce such and such. I can't remember exactly what the sentence was, but that, that would be a more appropriate way to write that. Thank you. Um, Marguerite has asked, is the use of first person acceptable for all journals or only Joe? You sort of covered that earlier, but I just wanted to throw it back out yeah, again. Yeah, it's not except, I'm assuming it's not acceptable for all journals. You would need to check out the, um, the guidelines for the particular journal. I, I, I know there are, like I said, a lot of journals that use APA style and it would be acceptable, I would think, in most of those journals. Hmm. But it would and, be okay, and lastly, Kimberly has asked the panelists, how does this relate to senior editors and faculty who are typically, do not refer to themselves in most of their correspondence? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I'll go on with my list here. Um, I'm going to go over to my examples document um, for some more of the items on this list. So then people, in their attempt to actually not use passive voice, so now they're trying to do the right thing, but they introduce a new error, which is inappropriate anthropomorphism. I see this a lot in Joe articles. In fact, I was just looking at one that has even better examples than what I have here. It said something like the study saw. Uh, you know, studies don't see things, people see things. So that's what this means. It's about uh, attributing a, a, an action that humans do to an inanimate object. So my examples here are the study used a mixed methods design, research has sought to, many programs pay little attention to, assessment should avoid the tendency of. Um, those just really aren't precise ways of writing because uh, these things, like a study doesn't use things. A study might involve things but doesn't use things and this is it's 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 something that you kind of need to practice i think to get it to get it right but it is something you really want to eliminate from your writing so the corrected versions here are um for the first one we we put it in first person you know uh, we use the mixed methods design that's a simple way to say that the study involved a mixed methods design is never another way to say it and then for the others you just need to have an actor um researchers have sought to uh, many programs, in this case it's not an actor, many programs do not adequately address whatever it is you're talking about. And then for the assessment one, those conducting assessments should avoid the, the tendency of. So just be sure that you're not attributing an action that an inanimate object can't actually do. Um, okay, then the next thing on... 
for the pur for the purposes of Joe acceptance, if you receive an an article is accepted and, and there's revisions that occur, uh, would you have those authors um, put it in first person if it hadn't already been done so? If the author can write in third person, I mean, I'm sorry, in passive voice, you can't use third person. That's just flat out against. I'm in first person. I mean, would yeah, you? Mention? No, but I'm saying you. So to not use first person, you have two choices. You can either use third person and say the researcher, but you that's not a, that's not allowed. So that, that I would not allow. Or you can use passive voice. Um, it's it's not good writing, but you can do it. And if you can do it without making grammar errors, and some authors have this ability to do that, then I won't change it. Um, or recommend that you change it. But what usually happens is when I do my initial review is when I would ask that, that an author use first person instead. Because, and then if, if um, you know, if they come back and they haven't, but they've been able to correct any grammar errors, that's fine. I'm not going to touch that. But if they come back and they're still not using first person and there's still grammar errors, then I'm going to go in there and, and um, change it. Thank you. Uh, okay, so another thing related to preciseness is comparisons. Um, comparisons have, there are a couple things that can happen, and th this happens a lot. Um, they can be ambiguous. So in this first example here, I'm going to read this. We explored older and younger respondents' habits with regard to eating fresh fruit and canned fruit. Older respondents were more likely to eat fresh fruit. Now, I could not even write a corrected version of that because I don't know what it's trying to say. Is it trying to say that older respondents were more likely than younger respondents to eat fresh fruit or older respondents were more likely to eat fresh fruit than canned fruit? So you have to be careful of things like that where you, you know what you're saying, so it makes sense to you, but you have to think about the reader's point of view. And then another thing that can happen with comparisons is they can be illogical. Um, and this, the example here is household incomes of older respondents were lower than younger respondents. That sentence is comparing incomes to respondents. And so you would want to change it so that you're comparing incomes to incomes. So you would say household incomes of older respondents were lower than those of younger respondents or were lower than incomes of younger respondents. So that's a, an area that um, where the lack of precision happens on a somewhat regular basis. Another one is unclear pronoun reference. I'm not going to read this, but this happens a lot. If you start a sentence with this or these or those, um, a lot of times it's not clear what that pronoun is referring back to. And, you know, you need to put, you need to add some clarity there. Um, so I'll just, I'll let people read this on their own and, and check it out on their own. But basically, that's just something to be aware of um, when it comes to precision in writing. I think that's it. Let me go back to my uh, slide. Okay. A couple other things here that don't happen that often, but I thought I would throw them on here. Inappropriate transitional words and phrases. Occasionally, I, you know, uh, transition words have purposes, like consequently shows, you know, uh, an effect that happened or something. And, and so some, you just have to make sure you're using the right ones. One, one that I see misused fairly regularly is as such. People have started, um, or I'm sorry, such that. People have started to use that to mean therefore, and it actually has its own meanings. Um, and then use of jargon and buzzwords, all I want to say there is if there's a common way to say something, just say it that way. This gets back to that talking to different audiences. I mean, there's just no reason to use jargon and buzzwords um, if you don't have to, if there's a good way to say it in common language. And then another aspect of uh, preciseness has to do with specifically with research-related language. Um, the first bullet point here is about racial and ethnic identities. And what, all I wanted to say here is, um, you know, like, for example, Hispanic uh, is, is an ethnicity, not a race. But I see in, in manuscripts submitted where it's, it's, you know, it's lumped in with races. And this gets back to what I originally said. If you, you need to think about the language you're using in your study materials. 
Because if you have a survey that lumps in Hispanic under race, then your manuscript's going to end up that way too, and it's going to be wrong. Um, and then the second bullet, I actually, when I was putting together this webinar, I thought I need to do a whole resource actually on this bullet, but I will run through it really quickly. Um, I see a lot of misuse of terminology and, and bad descriptions related to um, different elements of research design and data analysis. People seem to have a kind of awkward ways of talking about how, how participants responded to scaled questions, for example. Um, retrospective survey instruments. When I first started working at Gel, I was seeing a lot of manuscripts that had um, uh, post and pre instruments, and I, I I Googled it, and when I did, almost everything that came up, they were almost all extension documents, and I thought that was really interesting. So obviously that's a, a little piece of jargon that's gotten into the extension culture, and there there are more appropriate ways to say that. I still allow it because obviously everyone in extension must be using that terminology, but you need to if you're going to use jargon like that, you need to make it clear by putting it in quotations that that's what you're doing. Um, sometimes people mix up a code and a theme, um, it's, and that's really, I'm, there's a good document that I'll eventually put online on the Joe um, uh, website that'll kind of help, help with information about that. And then another one I really wanted to point out was rankings and ratings. A lot of times you'll have your, um, re your research participants rate something, and then in a manuscript you'll say they ranked it. So that's a, an area of confusion I see. It's not that the researcher's confused, it's just that the language being used isn't precise. Um, and then I have an example for my last little thing here. Um, whoops. That's weird. Okay, just the page down. Okay. All right. So um, I see a lot of impreciseness in people discussing their findings. And the first example I have here is this. The majority of respondents were white females ranging in age from 35 to 44. It's possible that was the case, but more than likely what this person really means is that the majority demographic groups among the respondents were whites, females, and those ranging in age from 35 to 44. So you have to be really careful that, you know, you're not just getting a little careless or trying to make a shorter sentence or whatever, that you're, that you're not changing the meaning of, of what actually happened. The second example is uh, the majority of participants changed their behaviors as a result of completing the program. Unless you actually went out and looked at their behaviors, um, if you did, that's fine. The sentence is fine. But in many cases, it's just that they reported a change in behavior. So you just have to be careful and say something like the majority of participants reported changing their behaviors as a result of completing the program. And then the last one is the flip side of that. Um, participants reported significant increases in knowledge. If you actually did a pre-test and post-test and you saw increases in knowledge, then it doesn't make sense to say participants reported increases in knowledge. And I see this kind of thing a lot. Instead, you want to say our findings indicated significant increases in knowledge among participants. So um, that's what I'm talking about with uh, imprecise, um, inaccurate language and careless use of language and grammar structures. Um, okay, so I have several strategies here related to preciseness. I'll run through those really quickly because we've talked about most of them in depth, and then maybe I can take some more questions after that. So the first one is write like you talk, sort of. Uh, the second one, don't anthropomorphize. Um, this one is about all that you know, illogical comparisons, uh, clear reference for pronouns, etc. And I did want to point out here, there's um, a resource on the Joe website. It's called Joe Guidance for Terminology Usage and Spellings. And it has a lot of information related to imprecise language that comes up often in manuscripts submitted to Joe and likely, you know, other journals as well. Uh, for example, I'll just give you one example here. People tend to think, I think they think on the basis of is like a fancy way of saying based on, but they actually mean to, they're actually used in two different ways. And so that document has, you know, 
um, some examples of things that you, you probably, language you might use on a pretty regular basis. It could be helpful for that. Strategy nine is the one about choosing research-related language carefully. And um, I have here about recording or referring to examples of queer language. And my suggestion here is that when you're, you know, the best way to learn how to be a good writer is to read and pay attention to what you're reading. And so, and, and pay attention to how it's written, what you're reading is written. So anyway, if you're reading uh, research articles that are, you know, somewhat related to the kind of research you do, and you see a, how an author has used a really clear way of talking about Likert scale or something like that, copy that down and keep it somewhere. And then when it comes time to write a manuscript, go and look at that and use it as a basis for how you might talk about that. Same thing with your own writing. You, you may really wow yourself someday and stumble on something where you've really written something well, re copy that and, and save it somewhere so that you can refer to it again. I actually do this when I provide feedback to authors. If I feel like I've explained something well, I copy it, paste it into this document I keep, and then the next time it comes up, I just pop it into the next document. So that can be really helpful. And then strategy 10, I cannot stress enough. This goes back to the fact that you know what your writing means because you wrote it. Um, so you must have someone read a, man, a manuscript before you submit it for publication. And this needs to be a colleague who's not familiar with the work. That's really the only way you can make sure that there's not con confusing aspects of the manuscript for someone who's reading it cold. So Ashley, are there any questions right now? Uh, yes, Sylvia's asked the panelists, what common ESL mistakes do you see? And you might describe what ESL is if you can. English as a second language. Right. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure what the what is meant there. If you mean authors who who English is the second language for the author, I think that might be what she means. Um, I don't know that I can say that I, I find a theme in, in writing that comes in, you know, from authors with who have English as a second language. I mean, they're, frankly, they're really usually quite pretty good with the, the language, actually. Um, and, I, you know, I do see, it's, it's, I guess, usage. That would be the answer to the question. Sometimes they use words in a way that is not the typical way that we use it in English. That, that's probably the main thing I see. And um, so usually what I'll do in that case is, just clue them in that we don't normally say it this way. Here's what we would normally say. And, and then they, you know, hopefully can learn from that. And so that's, I would say that's the answer to that. Great. Anything else? Um, no other questions at this time, but you still have a few moments if you want to submit in the Q&A. That would be great. And um, I do want to say personally that your examples really helped me understand, you know, these concepts much better. Uh, and I think those examples and are most probably in these PDFs that you shared with me that we'll be posting uh, after the webinar so everyone can get access to Debbie's PowerPoint and, and the examples that she shared today. Yeah, and I'll very quickly, I can actually very quickly go through my remaining slides because um, I don't have a lot to say about them. Um, oh, well, there's, the, uh, maybe we should skip this poll question. Do you think, Mark, that would be a good well, idea? No, I, I think we, we took the time to put the poll question in. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's do let's, it. Yeah, let's do it. it it's, it's fun. It, we'll just okay, so this one's about whether you find the idea of having to avoid dangling modifiers, follow punctuation rules, attend to editorial style, if you find that kind of thing overwhelming. Okay, we'll just take 10, 10 seconds. Fighting, fighting. You know, I wish y'all could see. I, I, as the administrator, I can see the the little bar chart as they go. So it's always fun to watch. Mm -hmm. that. Okay, I think we've got a good sense of where folks are at. So, almost all uh, yes, but trying to improve and no. So sixty percent yes, but trying to improve, and thirty eight percent no. Okay. 
All right, great. So 38% pretty much know what they're doing, and then the rest of you want to improve, which is good. That's the first step. Um, I know this can, I, basically, I know that editors are geeks when it comes to this kind of thing, and not everyone else wants to spend their whole life thinking about these things. But I will say this. If you're going to write about your research, you have to, at, at the very least, you have to value grammar, mechanics, and style. Um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's a huge topic, obviously. I mean, people take classes in it. Um, but what I will do is there's a list here, so you can look at this later, and it's the things I see most often um, in the articles that are submitted. And my recommendation, oh, let me just actually get right to my strategy, is basically you need to apply grammar and punctuation rules. You just have to. Um, so to do this, you either need to look things up, uh, you need to ask a colleague for help. There's no shame in that. You need to work with and learn from an editor. Um, and if you just if you just don't get it and you're giving up, then you, you have to have a professional editor edit your manuscripts before you submit them for publication. That's just, you know, part of the game. Um, and then the next thing is style. So um, this is from the APA manual. And basically, style refers to, to the rules or guidelines the publisher observes to ensure clear, consistent presentation and scholarly articles. Authors writing for a publication must follow style rules established by the publisher. So that second sentence is important. This is again a black and white thing. The APA manual, once again, has uh, pretty much everything you need to know about style, plus there are resources on the Joe website for where, you know, areas where Joe is different from APA, and it would be the same thing for other journals. Anyway, the, the point is that, as the quote says here, you're obligated to, to follow style rules um, established by the publisher if you're going to submit a manuscript. So since you're obligated to do that, I just want to give you maybe a little, um, a little motivation that might help. Um, if, if style is applied appropriately, nobody notices it. Um, but if it's not applied appropriately, then a couple things can happen with your reader. Number one, your reader can become distracted. So if let's say you are being inconsistent about whether you're using a particular abbreviation, so the readers, you know, very likely might start thinking, well, why did they abbreviate it here and not here? You know, and you have painstakingly crafted this manuscript. That is not what you want your reader thinking about while they're reading it. So that's one thing. Readers can become distracted very easily by inconsistencies. Secondly, they can actually become confused. Like, let's say you're not following capitalization rules um, and you've capitalized some words. The reader might start thinking, does this, you know, is, is this supposed to convey some meaning? Am I supposed to be getting something out of this? So it can be confusing to readers, too. So even if you hate the idea of following style or, you know, whatever, it's, it is boring for regular people, not like, not me, but other people, um, at least there's some motivation for, for why you should, you know, take it seriously. So that leads me to um, a list again of, of where I typically see uh, errors related to style, and I mean a lot of errors. And frankly, that one surprises me because it's, it's like I said, it's black and white. The rules are out there. People just need to take the time uh, to follow them. So the final strategy I have is to learn and follow Joe slash APA style. And what I do want to say about this is a lot of times authors don't know what they don't know when it comes to style. For that reason, I really, really recommend that, I know this sounds horrible, but read the APA manual. Sit down one day, read it. It's very quick, actually, because it's, you know, just little bits and pieces, segments of things. Read it and specifically be looking for, oh, I didn't know that. I've been doing that wrong all this time. Or, wow, I didn't even know there was a rule for that. So, you know, read it for that kind of thing. And then the other thing is, you know, if you know there's some style thing that, and you can do the same thing with grammar, that, you know, you just never can kind of keep in your head, keep notes about that so you can refer to it as you need to when you write. I, in fact, I even have, in my APA manual, I have four little tabbies here of things that I can't remember on a regular basis. 
Now, the very last thing I want to say is um, the Joe website is full of resources for helping you um, work on your manuscripts, and it would not just be manuscript for Joe. I would hope that these materials could help you with any manuscript you're going to write, and in fact, other writing you do. Uh, a couple that I wanted to point out, there's um, style and guidance for avoiding common manuscript problems. That is where you will find more style information, and in fact, a lot more information about the kinds of things I've talked about today. Um, and then the terminology uh, documents here. These are links to these documents. And then a lot of good stuff here. I did want to point out, this is a relatively new document. It's called Getting Published in Joe Strategies for Success. And it's basically, if you've, I think, I think anyone can benefit from it. But it starts at the very beginning. Like, if you haven't published before, here's step one. And then it goes all the way through to the last thing you do before you submit a manuscript. And it's really only 10 steps there. And some of them are kind of big. But anyway. There's a lot of good information out there. Um, I hope you'll use it. I hope you'll tell colleagues about it. I hope it is helpful to you. Um, and I guess that's it. Ashley, any? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, and Laura has asked, and you may have just addressed this, um, is the APA or uh, are there other resources online that you would recommend? Are most of those curated here at the Journal of Extension um, Editor's Desk? Yeah, I think most, a lot of them are here. But I would say APA has um, a blog. It's, well, it has a website. But I think it's apastyle.blog, I think. And um, I go to it a lot. I mean, because sometimes th something's not completely clear from the manual or something like that. Um, or it's a quick way to find information. So anyway, I highly recommend that, that resource. And then, yeah, I've tried to put together a, a lot of resources here for people. Plus, plus the, the previous editor did as well. She would pull out important, like all that from the editor's desk. Almost all that is from Laura. Um, so anyway, there's all that on the Joe website. Another another good style guide. It's big and you know intimidating, but the Chicago Manual of Style has a lot of good information in it too. Um, and, and it's online also, but you have to pay a subscription price for that. Well, thank you so much. Um, this has been very helpful. And um, if there are there any last questions before we thank Debbie? Debbie, I'll throw it out there from a as a sort of resonant tech person here. I've been using uh, Grammarly for, for a few months. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that tool. You know, I've been using okay. the plug-in. So, of course, everybody's familiar with spell, spell checkers in Word, right. but in Grammarly have, has some of this contextual type stuff that does catch some errors. Do you generally recommend tools like that, or I guess just use and mileage may, mileage may vary? Yeah, I think they're fine, but you just have to be careful. Um, like spell check is a, an example it will not catch things that are the wrong word, you know, um, in some, in some cases, so yes, those can be helpful. And my recommendation would be, don't just change everything. Try to learn from it. You know, at least try to, you know, what, what, why did this change? Maybe even go look in a grammar book. I know that sounds horribly tedious, but it, it will help you in the long run. If you put in time early on, it'll pay off. In the long run. Sure. Sure. Very good. Um, well, um, thank you so much for your time, Debbie. Uh, I know everyone, has learned a lot. I certainly have, and um, I'm sure there may be some follow-up questions. Uh, okay. And um, again, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you, everybody. All right. Thanks, folks. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye.